Welcome back to the Photo Banter Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Gagne, and on today's podcast, I welcome back returning guest, photographer and director, Dan Winters. I was excited to get Dan back on the podcast as he just recently finished a new short film titled Tone. It's a sci-fi film he's been working on for years. Um, So in this interview, we kind of talk about his process and how he went about making this film and how he approaches it um, versus his still photography. Um, So really interesting interview. Um, I've been a big fan of Dan's work for years. Uh, Hands down, one of my favorite photographers um, is his his approach to lighting and composition is like second to none. Um, So really pumped to have him back on. I think you guys are going to enjoy this one. And uh, thanks so much for listening. All right, Dan Winters, welcome back, man. Excited to have you. Uh, you got the new film out, Tone. Uh, mm-hmm. Well, it's not out yet, but in a couple months, it's going to be released to the general public, right? Probably a little longer than that. It's got to it's got to have its festival run. So right now we're in the fall festivals, and uh, then there'll be some festivals in the spring, and then next summer, and then after that, uh, hopefully it'll be streaming. Well, I know it'll be streaming somewhere. But um, we're, you're not allowed to release it uh, in any kind of public forum. Did I send? I sent you a protected link. Yeah, obviously. Yeah, I watched it a couple of times. It's awesome. So I'm excited to uh, for other people to see it. This because it's uh, it was just interesting uh, to see you kind of in this new kind of lane, like just doing a full like. I mean, it's about thirty. I think the whole movie's like what, like thirty three minutes or something. Yeah, uh, the first cut was an hour, and. Uh, you know for for festivals 40 minutes is typically the limit um and so then we we had a uh, a cut that we were really happy with at it was uh 39.59 so we we're one second shy of 40 minutes yeah and then uh and then we screened that at a theater here at, at an alamo draft house and then i inter- interfaced with some friends and talked about the film and one of them had some ideas and uh, Bob Schneider, he's a musician. And we, uh, we really went back in and I recut some of the stuff, cut some stuff out. And then we rescored it with a piano score. Yeah. He's, he, he did an incredible job. So we just spent several days in his studio working on that score and that's where it is now. So it's at 33 minutes now. Yeah. And with like the, the festival stuff what is it about like the festival thing like um why did you want to enter them in the festivals there's like is it just kind of to hopefully get more people to see it or like it's like that's like a world I know nothing about like just the film world and showing your film and stuff is there anything you're hoping to kind of get out of like showing your film at all these festivals I don't really have any kind of expectations um it's been nice to get into a lot of them uh the indie shorts can I won uh, best male director uh last week which is totally cool thanks and um and uh, i think what it is really is uh you know uh i mean i don't have any sort of like thoughts on you know winning any kind of big awards but uh, a lot of the festivals that we're getting into are festivals that are certified by the academy Mm -hmm. so that they can funnel into like academy award competitions and things like that so i guess the idea if you if you you know, likened it to photographs, you know, it'd be like being exhibited all over the world. So, you know, it's in Berlin, it's in France, it's, it's, you know, it's in Australia. Uh, 
it's in Prague right now. So I guess the idea, and then a number of festivals in the U.S. is the idea of just having it seen. I'm not even going. I mean, it was in the <laughs> North Hollywood Film Festival. I was going to go, but I kind of, I, at the last minute, I decided not to go. So I'll probably go to one or two. I might go to Berlin, um, but no, I'm not really sure if, if if I will. But it's kind of a, it's kind of just getting it out there, you know, really, to be honest. And, and also, there's a credibility to getting into the festivals, not even necessarily winning them. But, you know, the thousands of films that get submitted. And they pick a handful of shorts. And so the idea of even getting accepted into the festivals is a cool like rite of passage, you know? Yeah, definitely. And that's exciting. Um, are you going to do a premiere like at all? Just even for like local in Texas or anything? Anything like that? Or Yeah, yeah we did that. We did a cast and crew. We filled up a 112 seat theater with all my cast and crew and friends and I, you know, Alamo draft houses have meals and we fed everybody. And I showed a couple short films leading up to it that I had done. Um, and then we had a Q&A afterwards, uh, moderated by uh, James Hughes, a friend of mine. Um, and so that was kind of our big event. And that was really, honestly, like everybody that kind of worked on it tirelessly without any compensation, you know. Yeah. I mean, I paid, there are people that I, you know, I paid for editing, I paid for uh sound you know there were certain departments that were just you know but all the all of the onset stuff was all uh with the exception of like my core crew was all students from university of texas at austin that all volunteered wow that's amazing like how did you, did you just kind of put the call out like hey i'm looking for some people to help me on this film or how did you kind of get those guys on board yeah that's a really great question because it never would have occurred to me honestly to like make a call out I was I had no idea how I was going to do it but I was at a coffee shop and I was having a conversation with a friend of mine who's an editor and uh this kid walked up to me they were they were at the same coffee shop they were shooting something and you could tell it was all students they had like a little setup in the in the front of the coffee shop they were shooting and I was sitting outside and this kid walked up to me his name is David Rafalovich he walked up to me and said, excuse me, are you guys talking about the Criterion collection? And because I'm a big collector of Criterion <laughs> films and I've worked with Criterion and I love them, you know. And uh, I said, yeah, we are. And he said, oh, I'm a film student. You know, what do you do? And he's like, well, John's an editor and I'm a photographer, cinematographer, director, writer, blah, blah, blah. So we start talking and he says, if there's anything you can ever use, can you please contact me? I'd be willing to do anything. So I had Kath, my wife, took him to lunch to meet him. I said, you got to meet this guy and see what you think. Mm -hmm. So she took him to lunch and we, you know, both of us like fell in love with him. And uh, he's, you know, he was 22 at the time. And he, he might even have been 21, 21 or 22 at the time. And he, he kind of became like part of the family. He produced the entire film, wow. first of all. And so he was the key player with regards to getting students to work on the film because he was still a film student and they kind of joke and call him the godfather because he like cruised up every like ut film all the kids know him everybody knows him he's very very sort of like very purposeful and very kind and very motivated and dedicated and so people take him very seriously and if students were doing a film you know obviously they all crew each other's films in within ut but he crewed us up and, uh, you know, it was a long process of shooting. You know, it was like we'd shoot a scene or two and then we'd have to take a break because I had work and then I'd have to build a new set and then we'd, 
get everybody back together, including talent, and then shoot more stuff. And he'd crew that up. And it just became this sort of process of like all these students. And the great thing about the cast and crew is we worked on it for two years before we screened it. Wow. And so all these students have graduated and like moved on that came to the cast and crew screening. It was totally wonderful to see everyone again, you know, and I think for them to see, to sort of like, you know, get fed and, 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 and have like an event. And, and I took all the miniatures to the theater. We had tables set up uh, with all them on display. And um, it was like a, it was a really cool event, really cool event. And so it was, it was nice to give back, you know, because those kids gave so much. Yeah, that is amazing to hear because, you know, a lot of people, obviously you're super invested in this project and you want it to be good. I'm sure there's a lot of directors or people that work on a film, they'd probably kind of brush their nose up at hiring some students who obviously don't have a lot of experience. But at the same time, I know as myself as like a college student, I would just to get my foot on a set, any set, like I don't even care. I was just so hungry to get there. So it's just kind of amazing. You, you gave them a chance and it, it, it kind of benefited the, the whole project. Oh, yeah. And it was it, it was kind of amazing because they, you know, they worked as hard as any crew I've ever worked with. Mm -hmm. They didn't have the experience, but what they lacked in experience, they made up for in sort of zeal. And what I did consciously as well is I had I would assign people. It's like, Anthony, you're doing follow focus today, mm -hmm. you know, uh, uh I would try to give different students different tasks, you know, like Hudson, you're going to do like, you're going to be a gaffer today. You're going to be a grip today, those kinds of things. So that everybody sort of like worked in each department. So you get a pretty well-rounded experience rather than, you know, you guys are all like ADs or not ADs, but you're all PAs like, or whatever. yeah, yeah, like PAs. You're not PAs here. You're working, you're actually working on the crew, you know? Yeah. That's amazing. And I know like looking at your site, you have some motion projects you've done before. Like there's some videos you did with like, I think Nick Offerman and like Jerry Seinfeld. Um, but was like tone, like, was this kind of your first like real kind of short film that you had produced before? Yeah, it was, it was the first narrative film for sure. I mean, most of the stuff on the site, uh, I think everything actually on the site is all like derived from commercial magazine assignments yeah it was all magazine assignments so you know we do a shoot with jerry seinfeld for wired and we need to generate video assets as well i mean with the advent of you know there there have been like web pages and websites for magazines for quite some time but i feel like when the ipad came out it sort of like was a game changer like pretty much if you were doing a decent sized assignment people want to have a video element as well uh, oftentimes, you know, it's not always, but um, it comes up a lot. And yeah. especially with Wired, you know, Wired was really big on uh, video elements. So a lot of, did a lot of video elements for Wired. And then, you know, music videos and things like that. No, it's interesting. Actually, I worked on a job uh, just the other day. It, it was a commercial job and they, it felt weird as hell. We had to create videos for TikTok, which was like, I don't even have TikTok. But it's like a thing that like, it's like a big like company. It's like a retail company and it, it was a photo shoot, but then they also wanted to basically shoot on iPhone, this like video content for whatever their advertising needs. So it's just, it is interesting seeing like the assets that like companies are asking for now. And it's like, uh, I don't know, it, it's just a whole, whole new world now, you know? 
Yeah, it is interesting. And, you know, I, I just was speaking with a friend of mine about working on a job and it was a, I can't remember the client, but it was a, you know, it was like a serious client, one that you would expect historically would have like tried to get someone that really knew what they were doing. And they hired like a TikTok influencer to shoot it. Yeah. And he said it was the biggest joke that like the guy knew nothing. He had no idea how to run a set. He had no idea how to light, like nothing at all. He was like a TikTok influencer. And this is, and this isn't the first time this has come up that I've heard about this, you know? Yeah. There was another, another uh, friend worked on a shoot for Sony, I think it was a music client. And the girl showed up, the photographer showed up with her mom mm -hmm. and, and had never been on a set, only ever had shot with her iPhone. He said it was the most painful experience to watch this like kind of person go down in flames. And I, I'm not sure what it comes from, like whether they are like not paying these people very much or I don't know. It's just like a dumbing down of our industry. I feel. Well, like. yeah, de definitely. I think uh, luckily the brand we were working with, we were producing content for TikTok, but they actually had the foresight to hire like experienced photographers and we're, we created good content or photos and the visuals and stuff they needed or whatever. Um, but yeah, definitely. I think there's for sure companies out there that see, oh, these people have a following, but they don't have the experience of like, working on a commercial set knowing what you should charge so it's like an easy get for them because they can be like oh we're gonna pay this dude 800 bucks or a thousand bucks and he won't even know the difference and we get it's like good enough like you know i think that's a lot of the way a lot of companies look like it's like it's not great stuff great photos but you know it'll work which is depressing uh that that's what some companies view on like photography is you know yeah i think with the advent like you know, and we've probably talked about this before, but this is a kind of a major point, I think, in photography in general. And that is that, you know, the technical barrier has been like broken, mm -hmm. um, you know, historically, like you had to know photochemistry and exposure and focus and all those things in order to ensure that you got an image, you know, and the fact that, you know, you'd walk away from a shoot with a bunch of film, knowing full well that like you were covered. Mm -hmm. And that kept a lot of people out, you know, it kept a lot of the riffraff out, right? So you had to like invest yourself in this practice and really like learn it and really like uh, understand it. And that's not the case anymore. You know, people shooting with their phones, you know, auto exposure, the screen, I mean, the way the software works inside the phone, you know, you get this sharp, like brightly colored thing. You yeah. get a whole bunch of like looks that you can plug in and edit and vignette and open the shadows and do all that stuff on your phone. And, you know, the phone is a lot of fun, but it's like garbage if you ever want to make a print from it you know i mean we've yeah. made prints as test prints and they just don't hang up and hold up at all and but so much of the content is being viewed on on screens mm -hmm. and so obviously like it doesn't even matter because it looks fine on a screen um so you know i think it's i think it's kind of interesting but that like i said that technical barrier has been broken and people now uh you know they can get an image no matter what you know yeah. uh so I think that's like, you know, led to sort of this like influx of sort of, you know, amateurs that come in. I, I, I know that like that I remember serious photographers at the turn of the century when Kodak introduced the box brownie. Yep. So the, the box brownie was a camera 
and it was filled with medium format film. Uh, the image that it made was a circle, right? It wasn't a rectangle or a square. It was a circle. Yeah. And you shot all 100, 100 exposures. And then you sent the camera to Kodak. They reloaded the camera. They printed your images. They sent you back the negs, the prints, and a camera filled with film again. And then you could keep shooting. And a lot of uh, professionals, they called, they, they, they had great disdain for these people. And they called them Kodakers. Yeah. And they were like, you know, it was like people that took photography seriously. Because they were and, still shooting like view camera probably. Oh, of course. And yeah. for many, many years following yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. And so the whole point, I feel like, I feel like we're in that again, sort of in that mode of like, there's a bunch of people out there that really couldn't tell you anything about photography nothing about photo history, nothing about sensitometry, nothing about blah, 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 yeah. that are out there in the marketplace, you know? And so it is kind of a, it is kind of interesting. You know, there's a direct parallel to, you know, hundred years, 120 years ago, mm -hmm. uh, which is kind of fascinating to me, actually, you know? Yeah, that's one thing. I mean, um, I always respected about you and like the conversations we had, like whatever you're into, be it whatever it is, photography, film, miniatures, uh, beekeeping whatever you're into you you know the history of whatever thing you're into um to everything and it's, that's one thing i always respected about you and in your new film you kind of went back to some old um processes that hollywood used to use i think like utilizing the miniatures and i think uh matte paintings um was part of the film um is this have you always just been kind of a student of filmmaking obviously the bulk of your career has been in st still photography um but how have you always just kind of been a student of Hollywood and filmmaking uh, as long as you've kind of been in this business, I guess? Yeah, actually, what's funny is that my first, the reason I got into still photography was because I was into film yeah. and I was trying to make these little movies, eight millimeter movies with models that I was building and lighting them on fire and filming them and making army movies with my friends all dressed in uniforms and stuff. Yeah. And I would mess up the exposures a lot. And so I realized that I need to understand like how to expose film in order to get good results because I was getting pretty bad results sometimes. It was kind of hit and miss. So, um, so I got started shooting stills to, you know, and using a light meter and learning how to meter, et cetera. So that was kind of the thing. But um, I don't know if I ever told you this or if we talked about it, but my first kind of like serious job that I ever had was working in the movie industry on models as a model builder. So, so is that was, how you got into like miniatures and or you yeah. Kind of, yeah. well I got into miniatures because I was obsessed with 2001 and I was obsessed with Space 1999 and Star Wars and Thunderbirds and all these like shows that were like largely like effects driven you know a lot of miniatures and uh you know I subscribed to magazines that wrote about sci-fi and miniatures and things like that you know Starlog and uh famous monsters of film land and American cinematographer they would have articles about those things and I was fascinated by it so I started building my own miniatures and then filming them and uh I started taking pictures of them and I sent them to, so ILM was in Van Nuys when Star Wars was made. And then ILM, Industrial Light Magic, they moved up to Marin County. But the, the building where Star Wars, the miniatures for Star Wars was shot uh, is a warehouse in Van Nuys on Valjean Avenue. And um, they, a large group of people that worked on Star Wars didn't leave 
and go up north with ILM. They stayed in Van Nuys and they started a company called Apogee. And John Dykstra was one of them. He was the effects supervisor on Star Wars. Uh, and uh, Grant McEwen was the chief model builder on Star Wars. Both of them stayed and they formed this other company called Apogee. And their first project was Battlestar Galactica. Wow. And, um, and I started sending photographs to them and I was getting responses, you know, like, oh, I showed your photos to Grant. He was impressed with blah, 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 blah. So then I arranged with the guy who answers the phones. His name was Steve Sperling. Uh, if you're out there, Steve, thank you a million fold. Um, he, uh, talking to him on the phone, and I asked him if I could come down there, you know, and visit. And that was like a super secretive, it's a super secretive industry anyway mm. with regards to like you know letting out any kind of information but they let me come down there my dad drove me down there it was before i had my license i was 16 or 15 and a half 16 i drove down there and with my dad and went in and like that was it for me i was like i'm in this is what i want to do <laughs> so i through the connections i made started getting model work uh, and, you know, the way the model world, I mean, it's not very virtually non-existent now. I mean, I have good friends that are still model builders that are, you know, very, very like at the top of their game. Like, you know, my friend John Goodson just did all the models for the Mandalorian show and, uh, you know, very good friends still from that those days. Um, um, and the way it worked, it was kind of like the circus, you know, you'd like get on a job. And you'd work on the job for like six months or four months or two months or whatever long, however long it was. And then you were unemployed yeah. and then you hoped another job would come up. Right. So uh, I worked um, on one job. I worked on another one. I worked on another one and it was kind of good. It was kind of, they were rolling over into one another. And then there was like a dry spell and I couldn't like, I just couldn't do it. You know, I needed money. Mm -hmm. So I got it. I started framing. I started, I was a carpenter. I started framing and, uh, through that, you know, you know, went to college, started shooting photojournalism at the newspaper, kind of that thing. So the model building part of me kind of went away, but I always did it for myself. Like I never did it for a career. So as a hobby, I still did it all the way till I went to Germany and then, started back up, you know, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, I used some miniatures for a New York Times job and a fortune job and started building models again. Yeah, because so, in your film, not to cut you off, but people will see it, but some of my favorite like kind of scenes in the movie, it's like these scenes, I don't even know how you shot them, but it's like the miniature train that's kind of this floating through the sky. And there's a, it's just like, there's one where it's like a spaceship and there's like stars behind it. And it, it, it was just amazing to see that like, I, I what was kind of process of like shooting this film like obviously you you shot real actors out on location and then there's like the miniature stuff and then there's like these scenes where it's like I don't know if it's visual effects but it's like volcanoes exploding but what was kind of the process of like shooting tone like did you shoot the miniatures first did you shoot the actors or like how did it kind of all come together the miniatures honestly with the exception of a couple there's one shot of the uh of the camera kind of pulling through a window on the spaceship mm -hmm. uh, with that uh, kind of the spaceship's rotating. So you see the sun kind of looks like it's rotating with the stars. Yeah. That was one of the first things we shot. We shot that before we shot any, any live action. So I built that model 
and we had we built a rig with a motor on it that had a light attached to it so that the sun could rotate and you know because we needed all that interactive lighting that flare and all that stuff um which you could do digitally but i can always flare is really hard to do digitally in my were you were you shooting that like all the right in your studio out there in texas shot the whole thing there we shot all those set interiors there we built them all in there one at a time shot them took them down built it back up you know uh everything we shot at the studio except for the locations like the caboose and there was like um sort of a uh some in interiors of some like industrial buildings that we shot in and uh we shot on in an old house so some location stuff that where we found locations but most of it was you know like the opening sequence where the soldiers are running and the explosions and all that that was just shot right down the street from the studio in that big open field like 100 yards down the road it's really close to the studio i try to keep everything as kind of in the studio as we could and then we do our location days where we go out and like we're going to do one scene today this is the scene you know because i wrote everything too so you know we really had a good sense of uh, how to break it all down and um you know some days it was like location next day location next day location to try to get like as much as we could but um but yeah i mean we shot so my friend ryan gosling has this uh had this red 6k that he bought he directed a film called lost river which is a wonderful film i highly recommend it it's beautiful yeah that's the actor ryan gosling yeah okay yeah the actor so he directed this film and I was talking to him about it because he had given me copies of it and he gave me the soundtrack, which is amazing and all that stuff. And he was like, yeah, I bought this red to shoot it on um, because I did some second unit stuff. They had an A camera and a B camera. And he shot a lot of B camera stuff with this red. It was a, it's a Dragon 6K. And he said, oh, you can use it if you want. And I was like, well, I have this Blackmagic 4K that I was going to use for it. And uh we shot some stuff, the black magic, some effects stuff. And then I called him up and I'm like, you know, I think I'm going to take you up on the, on the 6k on the dragon. So they sent it down and we used it for, I had it for over two years, the camera. Right. And we used it. I mean, I never could have rented the, I couldn't afford to rent, have rented it. You know what I mean? Yeah. It takes EF lenses, EF uh, mount. So we were able to use like, you know, I bought a set of, broken on primes cine primes we used uh can stuff uh, glass as well and uh we used some old like fd stuff that we changed the mount to ef so we we had like a good you know battery of lenses and uh and we uh we shot the whole thing on that red um we shot some of the miniature stuff with the 4k for depth of field this is a smaller mm-hmm. sensor um because depth of field on miniatures is critical if you have shallow depth of field on something that's supposed to be like 500 feet long, yep. you know, that would never happen in reality, right? In reality, like no matter what you did, it would be sharp. Yeah. Um, so some of the stuff we had, we shot with the 4K red or the 4K and then we shot a lot of stuff with the red. And um, yeah, it was, it, was, it was interesting. It took so long to build the models that a lot of the model stuff actually happened after principal photography had ended like after we were done with all the actors and then we also had a COVID shutdown oh, really? and during the COVID shutdown I was able to work in my shop on models so I kind of caught up a little bit 
um, because I'd be like, I don't know if you remember the spaceships, but there's that one really big spaceship yeah. that it goes back to Earth on. That's a five foot long model. And it took me almost two years to build. Oh, incredible geek out. Yeah. And it's in three shots. And but, the, the most amazing one, that one was amazing too. The two that stuck out of my mind was that one. And then the, the main one where the main character is like in the train. It's like, it's like his, like, sounds like, I think like train conductor area where he's just kind of looking through the, yeah how big was that set and how long did it kind of take to build something because they're very detailed you can see every little like union pacific logo and every little detail down to the last inches yeah you're very very observant yeah the <laughs> union pacific thing for me was kind of a nod to 2001 when stanley kubrick had the the pan am clipper that went up to the space station and at the time 2001 was made so they shot that you, you could argue they probably shot that model in 67 probably because they worked on the miniatures for, or the effects for four years so around 67 so um at the time his argument for using uh for using um the uh Pan Am logo was that he figured Pan Am was the most successful and largest airline in the world. So it would make sense that in 2001, it would still exist. Mm. So he used that logo, right? Because he used a lot of different brands, you know, Frigidaire and there were IBM, there were a lot of different brands that they used and they consulted a lot of different firms and used their stuff. So, um, so I thought, well, you know, the biggest railroad in the world is Union Pacific. And so I'm going to make this Union Pacific. So the idea of it, it was a little bit of a nod to the idea, like that thought process, like if this, if there's going to be a railroad that exists in, in whatever time, uh, ours is an unnamed time, you know. Yeah, that's one thing I was going to ask you because it is like a sci-fi, it's sci-fi film and it's futuristic. It's futuristic, but then it's also like set back in like, like what the 19, could yeah, be like the 30s. Yeah, the 1930s with all the yeah, like the Union Pacific stuff and the helmets he's wearing. So it, it was interesting because it's like I, I was gonna, ask, I was like, what year is this supposed to be? Uh, yeah, it was kind of it was kind of meant to sort of be really mashed up, you know. Uh, the idea behind a lot of the wardrobe it was all very 1930s patterns. Uh, the actress Meredith Flacco, she made uh, she made all her own wardrobe. So all the dresses you see her wearing, she made including the one at the end, the red dress, it's beautiful. Um, and those were all 30s patterns, 20s, uh, 30s, 40s patterns. And then obviously like wardrobe for him was very like, I just basically had him wear the clothes I wear normally. That's what I was gonna say. I was like, is this supposed to, I was, is this supposed to be like Dan Winters like acting in the movie, but not because it almost like <laughs> looks like you in a sense. People have said that, which is hilarious. People have said I felt like I was watching you for a half hour. I did. I was like, <laughs> I thought he was like playing mind games, like this is me, but not me. <laughs> yeah, Antonio was such a great, I mean, he did such an amazing job to me. He never acted before, and uh, he was just a good friend. And hanging out with him, it was always one of those things where it was like always super chill. And I thought, man, if I'm going to work on a movie for a year, which I initially thought it would take a year, um, this guy would be someone I could hang out with for a year. And I knew the requirements of the character and I knew it wasn't like heavy duty dialogue acting, you know, it was very like nuanced acting. Mm -hmm. And I felt like he could for sure do it. So we just kind of, headed out on a 
kind of a journey together, you know, and it was pretty amazing. It was amazing to see how he grew. He was so nervous at first and how he got so used to it. He would like show up at the studio and go get into his wardrobe and he'd be like, okay, I'm ready to shoot. Like, it was really, really cool to see sort of like his confidence change with regards to his own acting and the way he performed and stuff. He was really, really, really amazing. Brought so much to the film and Meredith brought a lot to the film as well. She really, she really signed up for that character. And, you know, it was his movie, you know, obviously tone. Yeah. Uh, and it was his movie and his journey and his healing um, from, you know, the obvious suicide of his wife, et cetera. But, um, but definitely, but as far as like production went, yeah, you know, we, we shot the whole thing red. We made our own dolly track. We made our own dolly. We, everything we needed, we kind of built, uh, we built, camera mounts you know we built most stuff out of wood because we could do it all at the studio uh in my shop if we needed something we'd like figure out a way to like rig it and um and uh you know we kept it as honestly simple as possible one of the things too that happened was art center uh in la art center college of design mm -hmm. they had you know they had a film program they have a film program and they have a still program and they had like tons of Mole Richardson Fresnels, 1K and 2K Fresnels. Yeah. And they gave them all to me. Wait, seriously? They were just like, yeah. gonna, what? I, had a, I just paid shipping for everything. Jesus. So I paid, I paid <laughs> to ship them all. So we have all these like 1 and 2K, beautiful 1 and 2K Fresnels yeah. and PARs. They gave me PAR lights. So I have all these lights. And um, that was another thing. You know, once again, if I had to like rent, the amount of lights it took to like light this thing like you know that that cab of that engine you know like we had the smoke going and we had every almost every light we had basically we had working on that train cab that engine but you know all of the like the you know the arched roof with the ribs that was all cut cnc you know it was all designed and spec'd out and cut and so it was, you know, there's a, like, a level of complexity to that stuff for sure that I feel like really shows in the in the final product. You know, I took a lot of pride in the sets. My friend Johnny Clark, you know, I think you met Johnny. Maybe. Oh yeah, Johnny's great. Yeah, he he kind of really like drove the bus with the train interior in terms of like, you know, we drew a set of plans and I had him sort of work off the plans and kind of work on that and get it and i painted it but he uh he did a lot of the building we both did the roof and stuff but it's incredible i love the one scene where it's like the spotlight on the the one woman and it's like the old kind of like clamshell like lights that are like in the front it's like uh yeah yeah th that was an incredible one for me i really enjoyed that one so uh, you know that's funny you brought that up because those clamshell lights i looked into those or footlights are called and i looked into trying to find some and they're a fortune they're literally like a fortune to find them. Yeah. And I was like, well, I can't use footlights because there's no way I can afford those. And I started thinking like, what looks like that actually? And I realized that they make jello molds that look <laughs> like that. And so I went online and I'm like, you know, there are these copper jello molds. And I said, uh, scallop is what they are. It's a scallop shell. They said, uh, you know, typed in scallop, scallop shell jello mold. And they came up and they were like 10 bucks a piece. Wow. So I bought jello molds and then just sprayed them satin nickel and we had footlights, you know, and that stage was relatively small. We shot that with a really wide lens so that, you know, and the lenses are corrected. So you can't really get a sense of it. But 
it really made that whole environment like feel a lot bigger than it really was. And it was by design. I mean, we planned on doing it that way. And how is your approach to like filmmaking? Like I know some directors can get hands on with the camera and actually want to operate. Some guys just kind of sit back and actually just kind of direct and have the DP do the work. Like how are you, were you kind of hands on or with the camera or is it more you had someone else kind of running the camera most of the time? Come on, man, you know me. I know you had your hands on. You never know, though. You know, <laughs> yeah, there wasn't a there wasn't a shot in the film except for the only thing I didn't operate and meticulously like do myself was the opening scene when the soldiers come in and they're all running and it's handheld. Yeah, Johnny operated that. He ran because wow. he could run at the same speed. I couldn't run that fast and operate, and I would have like tripped or something. So he operated that. And he did a great job operating that. But everything else, yeah, I operated. I lit everything. I did everything. I mean, the crew, it wasn't like the crews weren't big at all. They were super small crews, yeah. you know, uh, and that's and then actors on top of it. So if we had two actors on location. It'd be about, a, you know, five or six people would be crew, you know, Travis pulled focus on everything with the, you know, uh, we have electronic follow focus and he pulled focus and Johnny usually AC'd and, um, and, or I'd have students AC, you know, and I'd have students, there were some students that showed a lot of promise in the camera department. So I'd have them working, uh, working uh, follow focus and working uh, like, you know, lens changes and stuff like that kind of ACing. Um, so yeah, we, we mixed it up quite a bit, but yeah, no, I operated and, uh, and shot everything myself yeah i mean to be honest with you it's like that's one of the funnest parts yeah of filmmaking is operating the camera i mean you are actually filmmaking you know so uh so yeah i i did everything i did all of it in every, every shot except for that opening scene i like it. you guys you wrote it directed it produced it made the sets god dang were you out there cooking lunch for everybody on the catering line too like it definitely did not cook lunch but david uh who i mentioned earlier was so good at lunch he you know he was producing he was doing craft services we had this joke about craft services that he was just leaving the craft services stuff in the trunk of his car nothing was nothing was perishable and it would just be the next day it would be you know craft services out of david's trunk but um but no he was on it man at like at like you know 10 45 he was walking through the set with a menu hey. getting everybody's orders hey so that's, like a, that's an important that's an important aspect to any production you, you know this like you, i work there's clients i work for man like they'll make you skip lunch they like have you eat, have you be eaten lunch at like 3 30 in the afternoon when you already been there since like 6 30 like and people it, it really starts to rub off in the crew and people are like you know fuck this like this client sucks oh, yeah. and oh, yeah. uh, it, it can't, can't do that off. man no you can't do that i mean i mean i'm crew you know and i've been crew forever and uh if we're on a job and lunch isn't ready when lunch should be ready man that's not a cool thing at all i mean i'll definitely bring that up right away um but yeah you know we made sure that lunch was there when it needed to be there and kept everybody happy lots of craft services second meals like whatever it took to like that was one thing uh, you know i know from experience like you just said you never skimp on that you know you never skimp a a, a, a full crew is a happy crew you know and, and that's, and that, and that's a big truth thing. to that 
and we're seeing that in Hollywood right now. I think they just approved a strike amongst the union, like uh, like film industry out there just last week. I don't know if you've been following that at all. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah we, AOTC strike. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I think uh, I think a lot. Well, and AOTC like encompasses a lot of disciplines within filmmaking. Mm -hmm. And I just feel like what that represents to me is an overall sort of like disdain for the way they've been being these crews have been being treated that's not to say every production does that no but like if if you get a i mean the the strike was approved in like the 90 percentile yep of the of union members 90 percentile so there's a problem there there's definitely a problem definitely my, one of my good friends mike he's a he's a union grip uh, out in hollywood and he works on uh, like all types of big movies like stuff with like the rock and all these big productions and it's kind of hearing his stories and like because it's like, yeah, it, it is interesting with film and TV production now. There's just so much content, and like I don't think people realize how much, how many people it takes to make. Because every week there's a new movie on Netflix, there's a new series on Netflix, and there's Amazon Prime, there's Paramount, and there's just dozens and dozens. And it's just the amount of people to produce all that stuff. It's like it just doesn't just churn itself out like out of nowhere. And it's like, uh, I mean, hopefully. Uh, the strike will get them better working conditions and stuff. And it's just, uh, I think it's just an interesting time for media in, in general, just because there's just so much of it, you know? Yeah. And also I feel like as a director, like, you know, for me anyway, like I would definitely like to do a feature. I have several things that I'm kind of like thinking about doing uh, that could be really cool. And I don't feel like, I feel like it's never been a better time yeah. to be a director either. You know, like the idea that, you know, there's so much work out there that it's plausible mm-hmm. uh, that I could at this late stage in my career, like parlay it into that to a degree. I mean, I, I won't stop doing stills. Obviously, that's my passion. Yeah. But I enjoy the process of making film so much. You know, I, I what I love about it is I really love the dynamic of a set, you know, and I've always loved that when we're doing bigger productions, bigger still productions mm-hmm. where we got, you know, larger crews, things are more complex I love the problem solving aspect of it. And I really honestly love like the camaraderie of it. You know, I love being with smart people that know how to do their job and, you know, discussing things and kind of best idea wins sort of thing. Um, So, you know, I'm interested in like moving, moving into film uh, as well as still doing another project. Do you think you would ever want to do like a studio film or because obviously with this film, it's independent and you really get to mold it exactly how you want it. Um, But once you kind of get into that other world, it's uh, a lot more uh, people got their hands in the mix, like moving forward. Do you think you you just want to keep it independent or would you be open to working with like bigger studios and stuff? I mean, I, you know, that's a good question. you know, I'm not like Christopher Nolan, right? So I can't say like, I mean, Christopher Nolan, the way he works is he makes a film and he delivers the film. Mm-hmm. That's how Kubrick worked. He makes the film and delivers the film. And that's what you get. He's got final cut. It's done. No one sees it. No one from the studio sees it. No one from the studio is on set. It's very like a very closed kind of process, you know? And, you know, Nolan can pull that off, you know? Although I think, you know, maybe Tenet, he could have used a little help on that one. Oh, uh, you didn't like wearing a Tenet fan? <laughs> Dude, I saw Tenet at the theater three times. Okay. I went and saw it, and I left, and I'm like, I feel like I missed something. <laughs> so I went back the next night by myself, and I saw it again. 
And then a week later, I went and saw it again. Wow. By myself. And I don't think I missed anything. I think it was missing stuff. And I'm a huge Nolan fan. Yeah. So I don't know, man. It just did. That one didn't work for me. But and, you know, I'm I feel like I'm relatively intelligent. You know, I don't feel like it was like I didn't understand something. I don't feel like it was fleshed out in, in the best way it could have been fleshed out personally. But uh, everything else I love of his. And I love that. Look, I love that someone's out there making a film like Tenet, to be honest with you. Yeah, I love yeah. that there's a, a guy who's like an action director. I can't wait till he makes a Bond movie, you know? Oh, yeah. Him making a Bond movie would be super rad. Have you seen the new Bond? No, I'm going to go this week with my friend Tate and see it. Yeah. yeah that's one I'm excited for. Like, I don't know. I was actually, that's another thing I was going to ask you is this like, what do you think about like the uh, state of like cinema now? Because when you go to the movie theaters now, so much of it is like Marvel comic movie. It's like every other month there's another like comic movie. I don't know if you're into that stuff. Uh, like if you're lucky enough to live in a like metropolitan area where it has more indie theater. Like I live in Boston. Luckily, we have like a couple independent theaters that get a little more obscure stuff, not just the big production stuff. But uh, are you still excited going to the movies these days or like? Well, I haven't gone to the movies very much in the last, you know. two years or year and a half because of covid you know i mean a lot of the film the theaters were shut down i'm happy to say that most of them with the exception of my favorite one honestly in austin uh it didn't survive it's it's closed um but you know everybody else and, and we have some good indie theaters here in austin and the draft house always has a pretty good selection they always have you know stuff that's like very mainstream like marvel stuff and i'm not a marvel fan at all by the way yeah. just to throw that out there um i don't i don't go see him i don't like him i like yeah, I, mean, it, it, yeah I, I end up going to them just because like i don't know i love going to the movies and i don't see all of them but they all just seem the same to me it's like all right good yeah. guy bad guy a lot of effects yada 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 and there's no like I don't maybe maybe I'm just not invested in the actual comic books. I don't know the stories well enough to be that invested, but to me, they all just kind of come across as the same thing. Yeah, no, I just feel like I've been scammed when I go to those movies. <laughs> like I have this idea that I'm gonna be like there's gonna be some like depth, and then they're just like the shallowest movies. So yeah, I'm not a fan. I know a lot of people don't miss one. They go the like opening night yeah. and go see those movies and love them. And uh yeah, I just it's just not my thing. But um, but yeah, I mean, there there are films, there are great films that are still being made. Um, I can't think of any new ones because, like I said, I haven't really seen much new uh, in a while. I have a massive collection of Blu-rays and DVDs and a huge collection of Criterion films. And I tend to watch a lot of old films, a lot of films from the 30s, 40s, 20s uh 60s and 70s my favorite period in american filmmaking was the 70s uh 60s french stuff you know 60s american stuff but specifically french stuff so you know i i kind of keep myself busy and i also have like a huge sci-fi collection so i like watching old sci-fi films and stuff um definitely like my favorite art form probably is uh film um if i think about like what i've invested the most time in with regards to viewing is probably film uh you know film and photography are my great passions and model building but um but yeah i i you know i think what i think what's happening is the marvel movies and the dc movies are the cash cows for these studios and they're what really like floats the studio 
Yeah. So if you think about it as a business and from a business standpoint, Warner Brothers needs big DC movies, Superman, Batman, etc., to like keep that place running. Yeah, they can sell and so they have to make those movies. Yeah, they have to make those movies, and it's yeah. totally fun. Yeah. It's like you know, it's like uh, I was having someone a conversation with someone the other day about Justin Bieber, mm-hmm. and I was like, I totally like the Justin Bieber thing. Like I totally don't get. I hear it, and it's like weird pop like i don't get it right you're, so not, you're not dan you're not a believer man no i'm not a believer <laughs> I, you know what i'm not even critic i'm just so indifferent to it like yeah, to me yeah. it's not it's not like i'll listen to tom waits and i'll be like moved to tears and i'd listen to the justin bieber thing and i just couldn't wait for the song to end yeah. so but my point is there are a lot of people that like that Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of people that like Marvel movies. There's a lot of people that like pop music. Yeah. So, it, you know, I am definitely by no means sort of like any kind of like in any position to like make a judgment on any of that stuff. We all yeah. we all like respond to those issues in a way that, you know, whatever works for you as an individual, you know. Yeah. And, but I but I do feel like, yeah, there's there's, it's a good time to be a director. There's plenty of stuff out there. I feel like there are really interesting projects that would never exist when it was solely studio times that people are able to be making. So that's kind of a cool thing. So yes, anyway, yeah. to answer your question, no, I have cool. hope. I have Speaking hope of, for the future. Yeah, you mentioned Tom Waits. I just random. Uh, I'm excited for the movie he's got coming out with Paul Thomas Anderson. So like, excited. See, that's the stuff I'm hungry for. Is this like original stories? It's like not like so uh, excited for PTA's new movie, Licorice yeah. Pizza. Yeah. Which Licorice Pizza was uh, uh you know, I grew up in Southern California. Yeah. Licorice Pizza was a chain of uh record stores. Oh, really? And it was called Licorice Pizza. And they got the name from these two guys that were musicians that were bantering about their album sales were so bad that basically all they produced is a licorice pizza, which is a record. It looks like a licorice pizza, right? It's a pizza made out of licorice. Yeah, yeah. So then licorice pizza kind of ran with that. And they that licorice pizza, that chain, I bought music from when I was growing up as the chain I went to. Music Plus and Licorice Pizza were the two places. And then uh, I was so stoked to see uh, PTA's uh, movie being called uh, Licorice Pizza. But yeah, I can't wait. I'm so stoked, dude. Yeah. So yeah. stoked. Yeah. yeah. It's also like the genre that was my kind of coming of age time is exactly when that movie set, 78. Yeah. It's like I was a sophomore in high school. They've, there's even a scene where Bradley Cooper's like breaking out the windows of cars in the background there's a giant billboard for KMET which was a radio station that everybody in Southern California it was the rock station like we all listened to this is such a cool detail I thought you know that's awesome yeah definitely. yeah it's pretty cool I'm super stoked about that yeah I love his films there's there's a not a film I he's made that I haven't really liked yeah definitely yeah I mean you've gotten a photograph like a lot of the fucking big time directors, everyone from Tarantino, Spielberg, uh, Ron Howard, Ridley Scott, uh, Werner Herzog. Um, are there any, any of those shoots that you kind of were your favorites? You think? Any? Obviously, they're all amazing. But like, is there one of those shoots that kind of sticks out for you? Getting to like photograph one of these awesome directors? Yeah, uh, Herzog, Tim Burton, probably. I've photographed Tim Burton several times, yeah. but photographing Herzog was awesome because. 
you just listening to him talk like i feel <laughs> like i didn't even talk i just would ask him questions and then let him answer and like really allow for him to give long answers because his voice is so amazing um but he was incredible totally incredible you know and i mean it gave me a chance to speak german to him because i speak german and i was like all right i'm gonna speak german to him and i, I photographed michael haneke who's uh austrian german he was born in munich but austrian director and um he's his you know he had this reputation i did it for the new yorker and he had a reputation potentially of like not being into being photographed or whatever you know i get that a lot actually i tend to get those assignments i think yeah because i feel like my clients know that i'm gonna like get the picture you know everybody gets along with dan you, you can yeah, do it <laughs> yeah, right so he shows up and i start speaking german to him and he was so impressed that an american could speak german and he thought it was super cool and it was a great shoot so it couldn't have been better but herzog um yeah it was incredible i mean you know plus which his wife lena was there and Lena is a photographer and she actually shows at the same gallery that represents me yeah, uh, at yeah. Fahey Klein Gallery. And she does a lot of like black and white stuff and she uses Pyro developer. Wow. So uh, I'd use Pyro for years and years and years. And so she and I are having this whole conversation about like the merits of Pyro and Werner was so excited that like, he, he said something like, uh, she uses a very special developer. And I'm like, yeah, she uses Pyro. And the reason I knew it is because when I was at Fahey Klein, I was looking at some of her prints. David was showing me. He had some out. And he's like, oh, this is Lena Herzog's, you know. And I was looking at him. I'm like, oh, she uses Pyro. Because you can tell from the neg, mm -hmm. like from the print, you know, like especially in the shadows, like the characteristics of Pyro. And uh, so I right away was like, yeah, she uses Pyro. I use that too. And he was so like, oh, my God, like no one uses that, you know. And, yeah. So I think that, you know, he, he doesn't suffer fools lightly. And I think that, you know, I think, you know, the, the greatest advice I ever got as a photographer was Jay Maisel saying, like, you know, if you want to be a better photographer, become a more interesting person. Because if you're interacting with people, if you're shooting like macro photographs of like, you know, amoebas and stuff, it's not as, I mean, it could serve anyone well. But, you know, if you're shooting people, man, you know, you got to be able to like connect yeah, and uh myriad subjects you know regardless i mean obviously we're all human so the human condition is like the first commonality but you know it's it's awesome to be able to like have a fleshed out conversation do, do you think like your approach to portraiture has changed a lot over the years and not not in terms of stylistically but just in terms of like how you approach people or like how you kind of um manage the set like, do you think the way you kind of managed that over the course of your career has changed much? That's a good question. Um, I don't think my interaction has changed significantly, although I would say that I'm, well, there's a level of comfort I've achieved at this age, at this time of my career, with regards to, you know, not being intimidated by any subject that I shoot, you know, it's always just another person to me, which I think is great. And I'm grateful I've achieved that level of confidence, you know? And I think the assumption is that if New York Magazine hires me to do photographs of Obama, that Obama understands that I'm a peer, 
you know that i've been photo i've been chosen and it wasn't random yeah they're, yeah they're not they're not hitting the, the google search for a local photographer there's for a, a tiktoker yeah yeah. Like, yeah this is an influencer he's going to be shooting you today so um i think that um i think that uh that's helpful yeah. because there's a uh, understanding with regards to the way my clients perceive who I am. Uh, and yeah, I do feel like, I mean, hopefully I've like gotten better as times, times gone on, you know, it's, I've definitely always felt like I was very competent and I was very, I was very sure of my abilities, but I don't think it was like a false competence. You know, I always felt like I did my homework. Yeah. I went to the greatest lengths afforded me to uh to make sure i was ready and prepared you know my ma major thing with shooting portraits always has been like um not to have the person sitting around so i'm always ready so like the idea is if 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 i'm going to someone's place i'll do sort of a handshake and a quick chat and a quick scout and then um and then uh i'll let them know like okay i need an hour to get ready and then so the understanding is like they're not going to be needed for an hour or whatever however much time depending on the situation and then we reconvene and then we start working but and then the other thing is you know which we've probably talked about and i think the most important piece for a portrait photographer is uh even if things are going poorly sort of like don't let on like, don't let the subject feel like you're imploding. You know, if things aren't working, keep that to yourself. Yeah. Because you don't want to lose a set. And there's nothing worse than, like, floundering to, like, lose a subject, you know. So I think those are, like, really important pieces uh, with regards to portrait work. But in general, um, I'd say level of complexity, pretty much the same. I tend to shoot with like usually no more than three lights two to three lights if i'm lighting mm -hmm. if i'm not lighting maybe some flags or some silks like but always almost always handheld so you know i'll have a guy hollywood something if i'm shooting by myself available light stuff which i do sometimes um you know we'll just kind of find the find the place and shoot it i really enjoy working that way i rarely get hired to shoot that way See, that's some of my favorite stuff you do, which I think yeah. it's like this amazing, like you have like these two muscles, like obviously you do some of the lit stuff, um, but then like you just posted your last picture on Instagram was of uh, the guy Ram Das, and it's just a black and white portrait. It looks like a shot on Hasselblad. Uh, mm -hmm. It's just like, I don't know, for me, like that stuff, just, if it's done right, it just hits different. Like you don't always need all the tools. Like do you, ever, do you ever fall in those traps like early on? Like, oh, I have all this equipment and I need to use it. Or like, how do you, how do you know, like when you make, how do you make that decision to be like, you know what, I'm going to use the natural light, black and white for this? Well, that's a really good question. And it's one that I struggle with to this day. And that is, you know, how much production to put into something. So the curse of curiosity and my curiosity with regards to like, production and lighting and modifying like an environment using lighting, modifying a scene using lighting, being able to work in the studio and being forced to use lighting. Uh, well, the curse of it is, is that's what I get called for, mm -hmm. you know, and 
oftentimes people aren't even aware that like hey you know i come out of a whole discipline of like shooting available light and it's like my passion it really is my passion i love it um so that's that's the kind of a part of the curse you know because i oftentimes will say like yeah i'm thinking about like black and white available blah 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 and then it gets shot down i did just shoot a uh picture for the new yorker where we shot almost shot available light we set up a little led panel just for like a little catch light in yep. her eyes and it was for the most part it was a available light shot and uh, i also did studio stuff that was you know lit and more produced and turned in like a few different options and they went with the black and white kind of available light shot you know you wouldn't know it was lit really it just looks like available light so i was pretty stoked um by that but i think in general i think the issue with it is as well is like you know when they call me that's kind of what they want that like production mm -hmm. oftentimes you know and so i'm not sure what the thought process is with regards to people hiring but i do know that like money is a huge piece and you know if they can send someone that they call they call them national geographic calls them bag shooters yeah i don't know if you ever heard that term before no, what does that mean so bag shooter is a guy that like has a camera bag okay and he, and he goes and shoots He's all right yeah, like, there's no crew there's no nothing yeah yeah He's got a bag he goes and shoots they call them bag shooters all right so they don't refer to me at not geo as bag shooter they know there's more production so when they hire me they understand that the budget's going to be a different kind of budget because i'll have two assistants and i'll be traveling with gear maybe another local depending on what it is you know so but sometimes for nat geo i'm a bag shooter um i just did a big project in west texas on the permian basin yeah that's on actually on my instagram yeah i can't argue thanks yeah that was all available like for the most part i lit a couple of the portraits it really almost felt, it was an assignment but for me when i looked at it it felt like a fine art project like cool. which, which was really cool to see you know yeah well it was awesome that you know i mean i spent i went out there four times and i just had one person with me uh each time to help like with logistics and stuff you know more than anything to be honest with you navigate help with gear etc um but the whole thing was shot basically like 35 one lens yeah super simple like really simple color available light now i shot that digital and i posted everything out in black and white and i was like oh my god this is beautiful in black and white but you know they didn't want black and white they wanted color so and i was fine with it because i'm very mindful of color when i'm shooting it i'm really aware of the color um especially if you're shooting available light colors trickier to create a cohesive body of work uh it's very tricky to create a cohesive body of work in color when you're not lighting yeah when it's just you know whatever's in front of you it's very difficult and, and um and, and one question in, in a scenario with that like you you shot it black and white and then the mag wants color will you ever push back to the mag and be like hey this is like this is my vision this is how i want to see or is it really just kind of that's they're paying you so they get what they want or like do you ever push back no i i I, sh I shot it as a color assignment okay okay i thought you were saying you you said you shot some black and white um with the digital stuff um no it's interesting um and one other one, one you went away from me you went away 
Well, no, I thought well, I, well, one thing I was going to answer that question, but you you kind of like stuttered away. But it was yeah. uh, the, to answer the question, it, I shot it as a color assignment. Okay, I shot it in color as a color assignment, but I posted everything out in black and white. Yeah, as well looked at it, and I okay. thought, man, this is really beautiful yeah. in black and white. But you know, I was thinking color when I shot it. If I were shooting it as a black and white assignment, I would have thought it about it differently. But I have my little like. Like I was just in Germany and I was shooting with a Fuji, uh, um, I got GFX 100. Yep. With a 100 megapixel Fuji camera, little mm -hmm. mirrorless camera, which is like unbelievable. That camera. You like the e you like the EVF? That's one thing I haven't made the switch to mirrorless yet. This because I can't get wrap my head around the the electric viewfinder thing. Oh, dude, I got I got over that a long time ago. Uh, I have that my X100 okay my fuji x100 yeah. and i started using it and it took me literally like 10 minutes and i was okay. on board i'm like okay i love this yeah no no it's it's totally cool yeah it's really cool and i it doesn't bother me at all and it also has a cool feature that you know the evf shows you what your exposure is also mm -hmm. so you're looking at the exposure not looking at the scene yeah. you're looking at how it's exposed so you can make exposure adjustments and see it real time um but yeah, no, I like it a lot. But it, uh, but I shot in Germany, and I was, for the most part, I was thinking usually when I shoot available light, which I had my X100 with me as well, and I always shoot with that. In fact, my EV, uh, my electronic viewfinder is um, set to black and white on my X100, so I'm shooting black and white. I'm seeing it in black and white, um, and then the hundred megapixel camera, which I also shot with. So I was wearing two cameras essentially and shooting with the x100 is my black and white camera and the 100 as my color camera um but yeah no i mean it's definitely you know and this is a whole nother show practically right. talking about like color and black and white and the differences and the way we handle them and approach them and shoot them etc etc but um you know we did a, a version of the film where the opening scene was black and white and i freaking loved it man because it's a flashback scene takes place like five or six years five or six or seven years before the you know the the, the story started yeah, yeah. and it looked amazing and we adjusted the sliders you know we did da vinci and we like adjusted everything so we got like every frame was like so luscious and beautiful and uh i was like ready to go with it and then I showed it to Kath and she was like, no, absolutely not. The color's amazing. Don't touch, leave it, leave it alone. You know? <laughs> so it's like at every turn I get shut down. But uh, anyway. Yeah, not interesting. And one shoot, I know you did, I think within the last year or two, um, you photographed Angelina Jolie for National Geographic. Um, interesting shoot because it was kind of, it was a homage to Richard Avedon, his famous portrait with the, the guy with the bees all over him. Um, I was just kind of curious um, your approach to the shoot and was that um, was it Nat Geo's idea to kind of um, pay homage to Avedon or like how did that kind of all come together? So truthfully it was like a conversation between Angelina and I had a Zoom conversation about what the picture should be. So to give you a little bit of backstory the photograph was to coincide with international bee day honeybee day and she's involved in a project with grillane perfume uh to promote women beekeepers worldwide so training 
women beekeepers and then training women beekeepers so they can become instructors. So it's kind of a larger, there's a larger scope to it. Angelina is their spokesperson. Yeah. So she and I were talking about what the picture could be and how we could use it. And I, I actually, early on in the conversation, I was like, well, you know, you could have a veil on like a beekeeping veil and we could put some bees on the veil and blah, blah, blah. And she's like, oh no, I want to have bees on me. And I was like, wow, you're kidding me. You know, so we have this whole conversation. I'm like, well, you know, there's this Avedon photograph, blah, blah, blah. She looks it up. She's like, yeah, let's do that. And I said, okay, we can do that. Um, have you ever been stung before? And she's never been stung. And I was like, all right, we need to get you a like toxicology run. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, and uh, sort of, uh, so we had a, we had a uh, allergist go to her house and give her a, uh, test to make sure she wasn't allergic to bees and then the trick was to uh, it, it was such a complicated job I mean this is one of those jobs where you spend I think we spent probably a month prepping for that job before the actual shoot took place what was the what made it so complicated just so what made it complicated was it was a bunch of things so one thing that made it complicated are the demeanor of the bees so largely in Southern California, Southern Texas, Arizona, New Mexico, bees are heavily Africanized. So they're very aggressive. So we needed to find some bees that were docile. And the most docile bees that exist are Italian bees and they're of a pure strain of Italian bees. So we had to find a place where there was a breeder where we could get bees from him. So we found a guy, we bought two new hives off of him. He delivered them to Southern California from Carpinteria, California. We needed to, when they did that Avedon photograph, they used uh, queen mand mandibular pheromone. Uh, so bees communicate with smell and the queen has a specific smell. And so there was an entomologist that was hired uh, that the gentleman in that photograph is named Ron Fisher, who we also talked to. We got a hold of him, talked to him. We also got a hold of the guy who, Dr. Geary, Dr. Gary, who um, was the entomologist on set that had brought the queen pheromone. And they put queen pheromone all over Ronald Fisher so that when they actually got the bees into a swarm state, which we had to do, uh, and we started putting them on Angelina, they would like go to where the bee pheromone was attracted. So I had to put, there's a little video on yeah. YouTube, do you see where I'm putting stuff on her? Yeah. So that's so that's bee pheromone, queen pheromone that I'm putting on her. Um, what's really kind of cool is we actually got a hold of the two guys that worked on the Avedon shoot. And the one guy, uh, Dr. Gary, still had the queen pheromone that he used on the Avedon shoot. So there's a direct connection to the Avedon shoot. We use the exact same pheromone. You get a little jar yeah. of liquid. It smelled like a little bit... Um, kind of like musky and that's what i was putting on angelina and then what we did was we got her in position checked the lighting got everything to where we liked it and then uh we brought in this ball of bees that we had gotten into a swarm state using that pheromone uh and we we had like a big bounce card just out of frame uh four by four uh foam core bounce card and we um a half inch foam core and we put the uh, ball of bees right at the base of it. And they just started crawling up her body. Wow. 
and we shot for 17 and a half minutes. I checked the time signature um, <laughs> from frame one till we finished. Obviously, and, you know a lot about bees, but yeah. how nervous were you that she was going to get stung? Because here's like this big Hollywood actress and she gets stung by like, whatever, one, five, ten bees and she's got marks all over her face. Like how, how confident were you going in that these bees were, you guys had it down? Well, I'll tell you what. I didn't wear any, so the whole crew wore bee suits. Mm -hmm. Everybody had bee suits on set and I didn't wear anything. Mm -hmm. I wore my normal clothes, you know, t-shirt, whatever. And I had been outside with the bees, interacting with them. I moved them twice. I got stung a couple times. They were super, super mellow. And so I was kind of doing that because I wanted to feel out like where they were in terms of like how they're behaving. And I felt really confident that we were going to be okay. We had paramedic on set. Mm. Uh, and I felt like we had an exit strategy. We had a fucking leaf blower <laughs> to, blow, to blow bees off of her. We'd pull her out of set and blow them off of her. Yeah. Like we had it worked out to where like, okay, here's our, here's our exit strategy. If there's a problem, you know, your safety word is kind of thing. And, um, and uh, we just went really slow. No sudden movements. You know, I, I briefed the crew like, this is the way we need to act. No sudden movements, blah, blah, blah. We, we had two backgrounds. We shot her against black and we shot her against green. We were able to like move the background. We timed it before going into it. We had the black background in front of the green background. We timed it even. They could move the black background in four seconds. So it just moved straight out, took four seconds. So I could just even just continue shooting. I didn't have to stop. Yeah, um, we had it really, really dialed in. And, and that's where like the whole preparation thing goes in is like, how ready am I to do this picture, you know, and this was a important picture for me, you know, I mean, Angeline doesn't get photographed a whole lot. Uh, it's a unique photograph. It was a collaboration between she and I, she was fully signed up for it. Um, she was very, very calm and confident that, you know, I explained to her all we did to ensure that this would be as safe as absolutely as safe as humanly possible yeah and she felt that going into it you know she got stung once okay and what was there like any reservation like obviously it's not a replica of avadon's your picture is completely different but there is like the the homage oh yeah for sure for was, sure was, yeah because like obviously you're a super well-known photographer avadon's a legend you're kind of trying to like not recreate but you know was there any reservation like kind of worrying like how it would come, come out and how it would be kind of perceived by people i guess no i didn't care i mean i love abaddon and i of course it's an homage and i have no problem with that yeah no i thought it was awesome uh it, it was really cool anybody definitely go to dan's instagram you can see like the behind the scenes video and stuff they posted it was really interesting um in a couple yeah, of I, mean, I mean you know doing an homage to Avedon is like you know in my opinion just like an incredible sort of like selfless act yeah. of acknowledging a master yeah, yeah I don't have any I don't have any problem with it at all I mean you'd have to you'd have to really not know much about photography if you if you didn't get that right off the bat you know oh yeah definitely the thing about ours, I feel like the distinction between the one I did and Avedon's, if there is any, I would say, is I feel like his is a little bit more shocking mm -hmm. and a little bit more, there's a little creepy element to it. You know, the guy's creepy looking. Yep. They shaved all his hair off. They shaved, shaved off his eyebrows. Like they did all that for the shoot. Um, and um, 
it's it's a, it's definitely a lot more like eerie feeling angelina to me feels like she has a bunch of like little jewels all over her you know like it's a lot more like beautiful in terms of like there's like a beauty that comes through on the one of her especially i like the one uh the green one i think i don't know they're like they're like four that i turned in that i loved all four of them and she actually ended up picking that black one and then there's the green one that's on my website which we all loved it was i think the magazine and i liked that one the best that was like our first choice angie liked the uh the black one the best so we went with the i think the magazine ran the black one but you know i think for my next monograph i'll use the green one probably oh yeah or you got another book in the works yeah, several have been working on them like pretty, pretty, uh, that Imicon scanner we have is like smoking. So yeah. many scans have gone through that thing. <laughs> yeah, we've been working really hard on it, you know, whenever I can. You know, what I, I got away from it for a couple of years because of the movie, you know, and I'm like, man, I need some books. I need to do some books. And I've had, I've had three that were like sitting on the shelf, like pretty much done. And then we're doing a couple more, a couple different ones besides that. So yeah, it's exciting. You know what I started doing recently? I'll show you. I got this device. It's uh... so in instead of scanning my my film now, I bought this like rig, and you photograph your negatives. So basically, sure. this this thing that this is for one twenty, it slides yeah. in here, and then you put the camera. It's almost kind of like a copy stand, and you sh you shoot with your digital camera. It's incredible, man. And you can burn through like a whole roll of film in like two minutes yeah yeah that's uh that's become like a really now now with the advent of these super high megapixel backs yeah uh, that's become a normal thing now people are using uh people are using uh dslrs and 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 uh mirrorless cameras to uh to do kind of scanning and and i'll probably go to that you know that imicon we make you know 200 megabyte scans oh they're incredible so, yeah they're incredible and so travis is pretty fast you can do them pretty fast. So, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's something we do, but yeah. What, where'd you get that? Can you send me the info on that? Yeah. I'll say info. I'm, this isn't a sponsorship or anything. <laughs> I bought this myself. It's this company called negative supply. Um, they're out of Philadelphia, I think. And they have all these different rigs. Oh, I'll say the link, but they make, uh, like 35, 120, and then they have all these different rigs you can buy, but really well made uh i was hyped on it because it just saved me so much time because I, I was shooting a lot of Hasselblad this last summer which was uh, yeah they just did uh elliot I, I just saw like a a short subject uh video on i can't remember what company was doing it but they were doing elliot Irwitz archive oh really and they, were, and they were doing it that way they were using uh they were using um a phase back yep and they were shooting uh they were shooting the negs and i'm sure that was out of efficiency mm -hmm. you know um although you know if you're making the way i look at it when we scan we scan the highest res we possibly can because i never want to scan it again yeah kind of thing you know it's just like just make the highest res scan you can so we don't have to put this neg back it, it can get it can get put to bed you know this neg can be put to bed so that's kind of what we've been doing but we've been scanning so i have a I have a pen did this book this is kind of what i've been toying with lately it's it's kind of a little bit of a shift i had for a long time been really focused on doing periodical photographs volume two um but i wanted to do um there's this great book that pen did called a career in photography mm -hmm. and um and 
it's it's this really interesting book because the, and then he came out with another another book like a few years ago that I can't remember the name of that's actually kind of amazing but he he did this journey through his career and um it was like everything so that it was like you know early like public photography and early assignments and different solving different problems for different magazines and this and that and it was really like focused on you know I'm a commercial photographer this has been my journey these are personal projects these are you know because the way I look at my work and the way I know Penn looked at his work is it was kind of all personal work yeah it was just yeah. you know some of it was this kind of personal work and this kind of that you know you took it all very seriously um and I looked through that book a while ago and I thought this is kind of amazing because not only does it um, offer sort of a kind of a, a nice breadth of work, but it also offers sort of the student of photography, kind of an understanding of like a path. And yeah. you know, when I wrote Road to Seeing, my intention behind that book was to make a book that didn't exist when I was a student, you know, a, a book that didn't exist that I wish existed. Do you think there'll be a second printing of that book? Because I know it's out of print now. My buddy was trying to buy it recently because I told it's like if you can get your hands on it, Road to Seeing for me, I, I just, that book was just so thorough and I learned so much about it. It's like it, it was amazing. Do you think there'll be a second printing of that or no? So it would be a third printing because it's, right. it's gone through two printings. And um, it's kind of a bummer because when I see my books selling for like, you know, the, 500 now, I think on eBay, five, 500 bucks for a yeah. new one. Yeah. Um, and periodical photographs goes through the same, you know, four to 600, depending on the condition. Um, and, you know, it's kind of a bummer because I don't see any of that money, you know, I'm that's all secondary sales. Right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, I see royalties based on, the list price of the book and they're all sold out. So I don't get any more royalties. Those books are gone. Yeah. They're all gone. Um, I got the, I got the copyright back uh, from the publisher. So Kath and I have talked about possibly printing it ourselves. It's an expensive book to print. Yeah. Uh, because it's 800 pages. It's a, it's a brick, but it's, yeah. I, I, I appreciate it. I, I, I look at it all the time because it's like, it's not a book. You, you don't have to read it front to back. You can kind of just jump in on spots and like read a couple pages here and kind of jump around and it's, it, you kind of broke it up where you have certain photo shoots and you kind of talk about how you got into the industry. That That's kind of why I really enjoyed it. There's like a lot of knowledge in there, but you can just kind of jump around at your own pace. Yeah. It's very like, it's very, chapter oriented for mm -hmm. sure very much so yeah you kind of don't have to have any uh pre-existing sort of knowledge of the book to just find a chapter and read about it i agree yeah. um the uh yeah it's just an expensive book to print you know i think uh printing i think printing five thousand is like about one hundred sixty thousand dollars. oh my god <laughs> so, yeah so you know i mean you'd certainly if you sold it out which i'm confident we would yeah. you you'd be fine yeah. but it's uh but if you're splitting that money with amazon you know, they they take a big chunk yeah so i'm not sure i don't know if cast done the math yet to figure it out we got a quote a couple weeks ago from a printer uh, and then we're, we're actually, there's another printer in the U.S. that we're going to get a quote from to print it to, uh, so we have to send them the book in order for them to like give a sort of accurate number. But, um, but I'd like to, I'd like to print it. Yeah. In the meantime, if you find it for cheap, yeah, it's probably a good one to grab.
No, I, I haven't I, seen one for cheap for a while. I haven't really looked, but <laughs> I remember, well, no, this is what happened. So what you just asked, we, we get flooded. The website gets flooded by emails asking that question. Mm-hmm. Or will you print it again? Can you print it again? I can't afford $500 yeah, yeah. for a book, blah, 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 blah. And that's when Kath started thinking like, maybe I should try to get the copyright back yeah, so that yeah. we can publish it ourselves. So it's been a, it's kind of a project she's working on. So I kind of have not really been involved in it, but that's kind of where we're at with that. No, that's cool. And uh, I, I, a couple more questions, I'll let you go. Uh, I saw you went to Switzerland uh, recently. I saw your Instagram. There's awesome black and white like landscapes. And then you also posted, you got a chance to hang out with a real le- a legend, Anton Corbin. Um, how's your kind of experience going out into Switzerland and getting to kind of talk with a guy like that? So the reason we went to Switzerland, there's the uh, International Photo Festival at Olten, which is amazing. And we've gone, it's happened three times. This is its third time. It happens every other year. And it was a great experience. Kath and I go and I spoke twice the first year. And after that, I just help and do workshops and do whatever I can do to be a part of that family, the workshop family. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this year we had Anton as one of the speakers, which was amazing. He was uh, very high up on my list of people to try to get to to come down there and um, gave a great presentation. Uh, he and I hit it off very, very well. I had met him about 30 years ago at the lab at Narduli. And he said, oh, are you Dan Winters? And I said, yeah. And he said, uh, he said, you photographed Don Van Vliet. And I said, yeah, I photographed Don Van Vliet. And he's like, you're the only other person I know that photographed Don Van Vliet, which is Captain Beefheart, which, who's a musician. Yeah. And he, he photographed Captain Beefheart also, you know? And then this time he's like, Dan, you're still the only person I know that's photographed Don Van Vliet. <laughs> so we kind of <laughs> hit it off with, a, with the Captain Beefheart thing because we both had a great experience with him. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, it was great. And, you know, we talked about a lot of stuff about, you know, relevance and like how, you know, like he never intended to do fashion work, but because his style was kind of like, it could easily be, I mean, any, anybody could easily shoot fashion work, you know, it's just like put the stuff in front of the camera kind of thing. But um, we talked about that. We talked about fashion work. We talked about what he was up to and things like that. And then on the last day, uh, we had a lot of great conversations, but on the last day, we, we um uh i had asked him the day before i said hey i want to do a portrait of you tomorrow before you split and he's like yeah yeah no problem and so i went for a walk that morning before breakfast uh we all we were staying at the same hotel and i went for a walk uh around the block and found that spot and so i was like i want to shoot it here so then i said okay i got a spot picked out already so we went over there and i shot like 14 frames or something like nothing you know shot with my x100 yeah. and uh and that was that but yeah it was cool i love that portrait you know i love it and uh that's a perfect example of just available light 35 like you know it's just i try to describe that you know 50 millimeter lens like i try to describe that to to people that you know when i show the available light stuff, the Hasselblad stuff or whatever it is, you know, like this is the hardest, like all of the lighting and technique and the tricks and this and that, like don't hold a candle to how difficult it is to just purely see, 
you know, just to purely see this, this in a range of frame, you know, it's the hardest thing there is in photography, it really is the hardest, you know, you can hide by tricks, but hide behind tricks, but just to really see a subject and to really see is, uh, is the most difficult thing. And I really wanted to just do something really simple and special with him and not, you know, just have it be about seeing. So it was great. It was awesome to see him and we become friends. We talk now, which is cool. That's awesome. Um, do, you, do you find, do you still, like, I know some photographers that don't look at, they don't like looking at other photographers work because they think it will like influence them. Do you still enjoy kind of looking at other photographers books or going to different photo shows? Do you still find like, do you find inspiration that way at all? Uh, yeah. When, when I, when the work's good and when I like the work, you know, I, uh, photography is very trendy and I think especially like in the photography world, you know, like the ICP kind of photography world sort of thing. Uh, there are a lot of trends in photography that are happening and have been happening that I'm just not into. They, don't, they feel really shallow and artificial. They don't feel really like substantial to me. You know, I've always been mo moved mostly by stuff that like emotionally tugged at me. So when it's good work, yeah, sure. I mean, as a photographer, it's easier. It's easy for us. So there's non-photographers that are involved in the photography world that look at photography, but they don't know what it takes to make photographs. Mm -hmm. You know, people that are assigning and stuff, they don't really know what we're doing or how we do it, right? They have a knowledge of photography, but they don't really understand like what goes into it. And I feel like they get duped a lot by people. You know, it's like, if you're a photographer, there's this magician who I love, the amazing Randy. He actually died this past year mm. or two years ago. He, there's this incredible documentary, one of my favorite documentaries ever made. It's called An Honest Liar. Oh, wow. Such a good documentary. It's about him. But um, he's a magician, world-renowned magician some consider one of the great magicians of all time and he said this thing he goes there's not a magic trick in the world that you could show me that i can't tell you how it was done and i kind of feel that way about photography like you you can show me anything and i'll have a pretty good idea of how you did it you know yeah, yeah. so you're not like fooling me at all with anything you know and uh if it's relying on technique it's kind of thinly veiled you know it's like really like you're relying on technique and you know there's a lot of people using colored gels and this and that and it's just like I feel like, you know, I was talking to Anton about it because in the 80s, he was doing all these colored gels. Yeah, it's like that's, I, yeah, the colored gel thing and like drag shutter is like so popular right, right now. And so many people are doing it like, um, yeah. And nobody know. knows how to do it. Nobody knows how to do it like Chris Callis or Hero knew how to do it where there's tricks to doing drag shutter properly yeah and no one knows how to do it right and so the image the person like smears away and you gotta it's tricky to do it right you know and it's there's a way to do it and there's not it's not being done right i see it all the time i'm like yeah you clearly don't know how to do that yeah to me it's all about story like when someone has a cool story to tell or like an interesting sure. perspective it's like yeah the technique it's easy to the technique is flashy and i think a lot of people can be like wow like that's it's really cool looking but then it, after a couple times looking at it i'm like eh it's just it doesn't hold the weight like uh, someone who has like an interesting story to tell in my mind yeah, you're right. And and I do feel like a lot of photography nowadays is like about, it's more about the story than it is about photography. Mm -hmm. So it's more about like, you know, like a socially aware kind of conscious story because, you know, we're like in a society now that like, especially our society that really like puts a lot of weight on inclusivity and 
and uh, and uh, you know minority groups and the plight of sort of like minority groups, et cetera, et cetera. And so a lot of that work to me, a lot of times is like, it's more about the story than it is about like, am I looking at some photography or am I looking at like someone telling a story? Yeah. Um, and that's cool. And when it's a great mix of both things, that's when it's at its best, you know, cause that's photojournalism, you know, obviously. Um, but it's all good, you know, I mean, I see work that I like and I see, work that I don't respond to, but it's like the Justin Bieber thing, right? It's like, who cares if I like it or not, right? It's like, yeah. there are other people that like it, you know, it's totally fine. Um, I do I do think it's funny when I see work like in magazines and stuff and I go like, oh my God, like if I turned that in, I would like never work again. Yeah, <laughs> those, yeah. are the, those are the funny ones where you're just like, whoa. Yeah. No did you guys publish that mm -hmm. i see a lot more of that now you know a lot more of that you know that might be our tiktoker guys shooting and our iphone people shooting and our influencers or whatever you know i know that's a big a yeah. big thing and people are hiring people off their instagram accounts and stuff like that yeah who knows but i guess to wrap up uh what's next man dan i know you got the the movie's still going through the festival circuit and uh, whatnot, but I guess what's kind of got you excited right now? Anything on you're working on? Yeah, I mean, I shot another film that we finished shooting uh, that I think's done. It's a documentary, so I can always go back and shoot more. Yeah. Uh, it's about a 12-year-old World War II reenactor. Wow. So it's pretty cool. So we shot six days on that, and I pretty much think I have what I need. Did a bunch of interviews and stuff. Uh, so we're cutting that and then working on the books and then just doing assignment work and then, uh, you know, keeping an eye on the keeping an eye on the uh, festival, you know, announcements. There's announcements coming out this week for more festivals in terms of like getting accepted or getting right. any kind of like attention uh, and kind of watching that. And to a degree, I think the, the festival thing to a degree is like it it operates kind of in a way that like affirmation like if you get into a group show for example like say you say you submit to the biennale mm -hmm. and you get into that group show right what do you get from that you know people important and people see your film right, to be in a group show with peers right so the festivals are the same to me like you know thousands of people submit to festivals, small amount of people get in, those people all have a common sort of achievement, whether you win the festival, you're voted to win the festival or whatever, just sort of like selected, being selected is like a great piece, you know, you're a part of that thing, you know. So the more of those that we sort of get in and like I said, uh, um, participate in, I think, you know, the better for the film and for you know whatever future projects there are yeah well thanks uh, i'm excited for people to see that film like i said i really enjoyed it and as always dan uh thanks for always taking the time to talk to me man like i really appreciate it i know it's like third time you've been on i'm always excited to talk to you but uh yeah i can't thank you enough man yeah you always have incredibly good questions <laughs> so i'm always grateful for that yeah i try i try my best man <laughs> I know you. All, all, right. Right, brother. all right take care dan Okay, it's great seeing you. Later. So there you have it. That was the Dan Winters interview. 
I just want to thank Dan so much for taking the time to come back on the podcast. Uh, It's always a pleasure talking to him as he's just an amazing photographer and director and been a big fan of his work for years, so can't thank him enough. Um, You'll definitely have to go check out his short film, Tone, which I believe is going to be released later next year. Um, Incredible work. Um, Definitely go check out Dan's website, uh, danwintersphoto.com, as well as you can follow him on Instagram, at danwintersphoto. Uh, I'll put the links in the description, um, but he's always posting up new work and different projects he's working on, so definitely go check that out. And as always, I'll be having weekly podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, as well as the Photo Banter YouTube page if you want to watch the video version. And uh, yeah, thanks so much for listening and take care.